Hi, I'm Dermot Whelan, comedian, broadcaster, best-selling author and meditation teacher. And welcome to the Mindful Podcast. If you've ever wanted to calm a frantic mind, understand your behaviour a bit better and get the most out of your own potential, all with a smile on your face, then this is the podcast for you. It's serious transformation without being too serious. The beginning, I remember like being on, or very early on as a young actor, being on film sets and the scale of it, you know, you arrive in and there's massive trucks and there's all these strangers doing jobs that you've never heard of and these people building things and plugging stuff in and bringing smoke around and giving you things and telling you what to do and and then all of a sudden it all stops when the director says action and all of this massive uh, machine stops in order for you to say your line and I found that really <laughs> terrifying at the beginning the yeah. pressure you have to be concentrated enough to block out the, the you know the electrician standing next to you with a flag just next to your face and the camera just above your face and somebody else standing over there trying not to make eye contact with you and all of these things and so it requires a huge amount more focus Mm. to get in the zone and to stay in it Hello everyone, I'm so happy to be here with all of you. On this episode, we talk to Hollywood star, Golden Globe winner and Oscar nominee Killian Murphy about getting in the zone. And we'll hear from neuroscientist, psychologist and best-selling author Sabina Brennan about why being in the zone is so beneficial for us all and how we can get more of that sense of flow in our daily lives. Each week in this series, I'll be speaking to well-known faces and I'll bring you fascinating chats with experts on our chosen weekly topic so you can learn helpful tips and techniques from the best to help you unwreck your head and de-stress your life. Stay tuned to the end of the episode when we'll have our weekly stress-busting one-minute meditation. I'll tell you about our next exciting guests and I'll also tell you how you can join me on next week's episode. But firstly, why am I doing the Mindful Podcast? Well, I've always been fascinated about how our minds work, what's going on in there when things are going well, and more importantly, what can we learn about ourselves when things aren't going so well? Ever since I had a panic attack on the way to a comedy festival over 15 years ago when I was stressed out and burnt out with crappy sleep, I've been super curious about the tools and techniques that can help us to feel a bit more balance and joy in our lives. Along the way, I discovered meditation and despite being hugely cynical about it initially, I found it really helped. In fact, I believed in it so much, I trained as a teacher and after packing in a perfectly good national radio job, I now work at meditation full time and I absolutely love it because I'm very excited about presenting this stuff in a different and more accessible way. When it comes to meditation, I think a lot of people have the image of someone on a mountaintop in the lotus position looking all chilled out and perfect. But I've learned over the years that tools like meditation are not just for very beautiful people in Lululemon yoga pants who wake up in the morning and cover themselves in hummus. (laughs) It's for everyone and it definitely doesn't only have to happen on a mountaintop. You can do short meditations while walking to the bus stop, while washing the dishes or even sitting on the toilet. Some of my best work 
<laughs> de-stressing has been done in the humble surrounds of a toilet. That's why I wrote my book Mindful, why I do my mindful live shows and why I'm now doing the mindful podcast. It's to make de-stressing and understanding ourselves a bit better accessible to all. So you don't have to shave your head and fly to the Himalayas or bend your legs into the shape of a Bavarian pretzel. (laughs) In my live shows, I blend stand up comedy and meditation. And I've seen firsthand how humor and fun help people who may generally be resistant to things like meditation, just like I was, and open up and begin to embrace their mind and nervous systems in a whole new way. And I hope this podcast does the same for you too. So, on to this week's topic. Did you know that almost 50% of the time we are not thinking about the thing we're actually doing? And it all begins with my garden. Let me explain. I recently spent some time working in my garden, cutting hedges, mowing the lawn and doing all those kind of things. And when my wife asked me how I was getting on, I replied that I was having a great time. (laughs) When I finished, I looked at my watch and I couldn't believe how long I'd been out there. Six hours. It literally felt like two. And I had no sense of being tired or hungry while the whole thing was going on. And weirdly, I wasn't aware I even liked gardening. I'm still not sure I do. Now, all this is a sign of two things, okay? One, I am turning into my father. (laughs) I found myself staring out the window, hand on hips, admiring my handiwork afterwards, saying things like, it's great to get that done now, and can you believe how many weeds came out of there? (laughs) And two, somehow I had entered the zone, and that is today's topic. Why did I choose getting into the zone, our flow state, as the subject for this week? Well, so much of meditation and mindfulness is about getting into the present moment. And as airy-fairy as that can sound to some at times, it really just means our mind is not in the future, worrying about things that may happen, or it's not in the past, worrying about the things that have happened. We're just, well, present. And why is that important? Well, science tells us that the more time we can spend in this present space, the more content we will be. And one Harvard study has shown that almost half the time, as I say, we are not actually thinking about what we're doing when we're actually doing it. And all this mind wandering makes us less happy. So any state where we're in this present moment has got to be helpful, right? Enter the zone. You know those moments when everything just seems to come together. It's that magical state where the simple perfection of the present moment lives and creativity can just seem to well flow. From business person to artist, there are moments in all our lives, I believe, when we feel we've tapped into that zone. And like meditation, time can feel like it's slowed down. Our mind wanders less. Everything can seem effortless and we stop judging ourselves, most importantly. It's certainly something I've experienced over the years on a comedy stage and now apparently gardening. But the problem is, and the frustrating part is, it can be fleeting. And if you think about it too much, it can disappear. It's kind of like trying to remember your dreams. What can we do, therefore, to help us reach that flow state more often? And how do we gain a sense of flow, not only in the moment, but in our daily lives so that we can actually enjoy the people and experiences that really make us happy? 
because I guess that's what we all want. That's what makes life feel good. So before we speak to Killian about his experience getting into that magical place that has earned him some fairly serious accolades, I think it's a good idea to hear from an expert about flow state so that we can really understand it and see how it applies to Killian and ourselves. So what exactly is it? And how can it teach us to live more fulfilled lives? So joining me is Dr. Sabina Brennan, neuroscientist, psychologist and best-selling author of books like 100 Days to a Younger Brain, Beating Brain Fog and the hotly anticipated The Neuroscience of Manifesting coming very soon. I started by asking Sabina about the origins of flow state and if it really is that elusive magical place specially sought after by athletes and performers, a place where, well, the magic happens. Yeah, it is where the magic happens, mm. I think. I think it's in the zone, you know, yeah. and, and the concept of flow was coined by a researcher a Hungarian researcher, he lived in the US at the time, and he has one of those names that you really just have to learn how to pronounce it the way I do it mm. is, is phonetically. So it's Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. He became fascinated with happiness mm. and how people can experience enjoyment despite horrific things happening around them. And that mm. kind of came out from the war and, and, and some people who, you know, were subjected to all those terrible things that happened during the war or mm. indeed any disaster. And yet some people seem to be able to continue to joy, enjoy life despite that. And, and mm. that's where he sort of started his research from. And he, first of all, did thousands of interviews with people all across the globe to try and understand what he mm. ultimately called the state of flow. But the interesting thing that he found was that there was commonalities, regardless of your culture, regardless of the activity that you were engaging in, you know, whether it's, we hear a lot, you just mentioned mm. it, a lot about sport, etc. But other people experiencing flow, doing more mundane things or things that mm. you and I might not find enjoyable. And he kind of then teased apart about eight components that he felt mm. were necessary for flow. Yeah, well, let's let's drill down into those a little bit, because just I, I'd like people to kind of understand what it is and and what's happening and what they're experiencing. And I know that one of those uh, factors that that he said encompassed flow was intense and focused concentration on the present moment. So obviously, as a meditation teacher, that's a space that I'm trying to get people into the whole time. So in terms of bringing ourselves into the present moment, that seems to be a byproduct. It's almost like the it's like the opposite to meditation where we're trying to put ourselves in there. It's something that sort of comes out of flow. Yeah, so that's rather interesting. So he would actually, you've said focused and 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 mm. um, with meditation on the present moment, but actually he characterizes as those two different things. One okay. is attention mm. and the other is being in the moment. So he classifies those as, as, as two separate things. Attention... Really interestingly, it's it's a high energy activity for your brain. You have attention is hard work. Yeah. <laughs> you know that if you've been focusing on something all day, all day, all day, and you go, oh my God, I'm exhausted. I can't do anything else. So it burns up a lot of energy uh, in your brain and it's a limited resource. Mm. Okay. So what seems to happen is if you are fully focused on the task at hand, there is no 
energy available to be doing those other things that can get in the way mm. of flow that you're talking about. There's no energy for that voice in your head to say, you're not good enough to do this. Oh my God, I wonder what other people are thinking of. Yeah. Thinking of me doing this. You're totally flow- focused on the flow. One of them is a, a loss of reflective self-consciousness. And yeah. that's pretty much what you said in terms of you're not in a state where you're where you're looking at yourself worried about how you're performing or whether you're going to fail yeah. uh, or, or what people may think of you. No, you're not. And what's really interesting, you know, the neuroscience research around flow is in its infancy, you know, so there's still a lot to learn, but there's some mm. really exciting things have come out. And one of those is related to that. So the frontal lobes of your brain, there's a particular area there that's involved in that self-awareness, self-judgment, mm. you know, that sort of thing. And what's really interesting is when people are in the state of flow, there is a sort of damping down of activity in that area. It's actually called a a hypofrontality, hypo as opposed to hyper. Mm. So you become less frontal and that accounts for obviously that ability to not be passing judgment or not be the Mm. the observer. They're also intertwined and in some ways to a listener, it might sound complex. The thing is, he, he tends to start with you need clarity. You need clarity of purpose, clarity of goal, your long term goal and your mm. your short term goals, you know, mm. and this is important for flow too, is that there must be a balance between your skill level and the challenge that you're facing in flow. So mm. flow always involves some sort of little challenge. It's There's a bit of a kind of a Goldilocks with flow. If your skill set is not up to the challenge, to the thing that you're trying to do, you'll feel frustration. You definitely won't get into flow. Yeah. Because you'll be frustrated because you can't do the thing. If your skill set is way beyond the challenge of the activity, you will soon become bored and you're, there's plenty mm. of energy left over, attentional resources left, left over to engage in something else. So you want this Goldilocks moment, not exactly where flow and the challenge are exactly matched. There needs to be a slight bit of, of challenge. Well, the, the Goldilocks balance that you spoke about there makes sense. If you look at sport in general and people who excel, most of their celebrated flow state moments would probably be in that earlier part of their career where they're, as you say, their talent is still rising. They're still challenging themselves every day and they're finding these moments of brilliance. And then I guess towards the end of, say, a footballer's career, there are less of those heroic moments where, where for them, as they used to describe, time would slow down and you know, yeah, they and, beat and maybe own, it's because they beat their own record, or they match yeah. someone else's record, or they beat a record. So there's less to to play for, maybe. You yeah. Know? So less if, juice. if well, you see, that's the interesting thing. If you just stay focused on sort of one thing rather thing, than it being yeah. an ongoing, continuing story, you know, they can still be related, mm. like a fabulous footballer becoming a soccer manager or a coach or whatever. You know, they no longer play; mm. they're no longer, but they're getting their buzz out of transferring their knowledge and making a team, you know, perform well. Yeah. It kind of changes. I think it becomes problematic if you don't move move on from that. Mm. Obviously, I'm mindful of the people listening who may not be world class professional yes. footballers or F1 drivers or, you know, famous actors or any of those kinds of things. Where do we 
experience flow state in day to day life that maybe we don't even recognize for yeah, what it is. Yeah, this is the thing. And why do we need it? Why is it a good thing? Well, the thing I wanted to say is flow is one of the easiest the things that comes naturally to us as children. All you have to do is look at a six or seven year old in an imaginary world. They could be in the middle of a supermarket and they're dancing around or they're talking to someone or they have you know, they do not care what anyone else is thinking. They don't even know there's people around them. They are totally absorbed in the moment. It's a very natural state for all of us. But as we grow and learn within the society we're in, I think we start to lose that capacity because mm. we gain a certain amount of self-awareness, which is really, really important. You know, you need that self-awareness, but you also need to be able to manage it so that it doesn't impede you mm. in the progress you want to make. You asked about everyday examples. Mm. Basically, Mihai gives one which is really, really good. Not everything we do in life is enjoyable, right? And flow is about enjoyment, enjoying th mm. the state. So the example that Mihai gives is of a guy working on a, you know, in a factory on a conveyor belt and he, his job was to, I think it was like in a car factory or, or a stereo factory, he had to adjust the sound, you know, that was his station and he had 47 seconds to do that, right? And this man loved his job, right? But that's what he did. Twiddle this knob, twiddle this. Okay, next 47 seconds, mm. twiddle, twiddle. Right. What he did was he, he focused on bringing his time down. He loved his job because he was getting this kick every day. He eventually mm. got his time down to 30 seconds from 47 seconds. And ultimately then he got it down to something about 27 seconds and it was not possible to get it any further. At which point he decided to go and study and train to be a mechanical engineer and seek promotion in his job. So, you know, there's a certain point with athletes that they get that you can't run faster than that, that you've now, your age has changed or whatever. So it's time to turn and see what other challenge you can give yourself, what new skills mm. you can give yourself to go on. So I, that's why I kind of talk about it as a as a journey. So that's for the mundane stuff, because yeah. not everything can be enjoyable, but you can be in, there's no way you can speed up your time on even a mm. mundane task without being totally immersed in it. You have your goal. You're getting your feedback. Did I get it in the time? And time is kind of distorted because you're there, you know, mm. in the moment as well. So listening to that, flow state is almost an indicator of how much juice we're squeezing out of life at that particular time. I think you're absolutely right. It, it, flow is about getting the optimal enjoyment out of life. That's mm. what it is. I, I guess buzz as well. I'm thinking of oh, somebody maybe who works at a till in an incredibly busy department store and they're like, oh, the customers keep coming and they're like, woo, and they're, you know, ringing through all the orders and at the end of it, they're feeling like, woo, that was intense. They're almost high-fiving each other and going, wow, that, you know, that the, was, that the, was crazy. How... My God, how, how is it half that? five already? The but they're kind of buzzing after it and they feel like they were challenged. They got through it and they're, and they're, I guess they were in a flow state during it and now they're feeling kind Satisfaction. of satisfied. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's a couple of other concepts like flow. Mm. I mean, for me, one that jumps out is Ikigai. I don't know if you're familiar with Ikigai. It's the Japanese concept where... I thought it was a medical term. Yeah, for, I'm an, icky, you've for got, an icky guy. You, that's again... You've like, got icky eye disease. Again, like Mihai, where yeah. I wrote down M-E... 
H-I-G-H in order to, yeah. to pronounce it. I did the same for Icky Guy and I spoke about, you know, oh God, he's an Icky Guy and that's how I remember it. It works. But basically, Icky Guy is where four things meet and they actually illustrate it with a Venn diagram. Mm. So it's where four things interconnect and that is your passion, what you love doing, your mission, something that the world needs. The next thing is your vocation, your skills, what you are good at. And the final one is something mm. that you can be paid to do. So doing something that you love, that the world wants, that you're good at mm. and they're prepared to pay you. That is Icky Guy when all of those come together. Mm. And in a way, that echoes flow for me, too, that, you know, that would be ideal if you can do something that you love. I mean, that was my ultimate goal raising my kids was I wanted them to find something that they loved doing. And this was before I read mm. about all these things, but I just wanted for them to find something that they loved doing and find a way to get someone to pay it them to do it. Yeah. And then the other thing is about, you know, manifesting your goals. Again, they echo very closely some of the things that are itemized in flow, like mm. having a clarity. Another thing we didn't talk about is making sure that everything is aligned. In my book, I call it coherence, but that your actions your thinking, your beliefs and your emotions are all on the same page. And that's kind of in a way where some of the barriers come in. Mm. If they're not Well, see, a lot of us might say we want one thing and we hope to do something and someday I'll be doing, but actually our behavior, our actions are are not not aligned. Are not speaking. Yeah, they're not speaking to it. And that's why I think as well, you need to be aware when people are watching you and you need to be aware of what behavior is appropriate Mm. in what situation. But then you also need to be able to switch those things off when you're doing things that you love. Because at the end of the day, you've only got one one life and maximizing your potential and your enjoyment in that life is mm. what's key. At the end of the day, does it really matter what somebody thinks? But it does matter in certain instances. Yeah. That's the balance. The trade-off, yeah. Y- yeah, y- you know, I mean, you've got to live in a world that has rules and you've got to be out of flow for some of the time. Do Mm. do you know what I mean? But you can maximise the amount of time that you are in flow. Well, isn't our time then outside of the flow state, rather than getting frustrated that we can't get back into it, isn't our time outside of flow then as crucially important as the flow state in that the time we're out of flow, we're learning things about maybe that, you know, bring us off course, our roadblocks we throw in our in our own way. So that, you know, it's almost like the silence between the notes in a song, actually. It's the times when things aren't in flow. That's actually where growth happens. And then the flow state is an indicator of alignment that, that well, you've, you know... That I, th- you... I think growth happens in both. I yeah. think one of the key components of flow is actually learning. I, I mean, he calls it becoming a more complex person. But you need to be out of the flow to consider your goals and the things that you want to achieve and consider maybe who you really are. And as you said, understand. So for me, whilst clarity is very important and often put down as the first step in gaining flow or the first step in manifesting your goals, you know, being clear about what you want. I firmly believe that the first step is actually going into understanding yourself who you are and learning to be compassionate towards yourself. Our sense of self is created by our brain. 
right? I, I always argue we are our brain, okay? And our self is a construction of our brain. And, and it is taken from various bits of information from across your lifespan. Mm. And some of that information is no longer valid. Some of it was never valid. Some of it is completely wrong or out of date. And frequently, who we think we are is influenced by what someone else thinks of us. So I think, you know, for me, and I would say this about flow as well, that before you start trying to get into states of flow, spend some time trying to get to know who you really are and what you really, really want, not who you think you should be or, you know, actually really kind of question, why do I think I'm no good at that? (laughs) Why do I think I can't do that? Is that actually valid? I spoke to someone for my book. She had a lifelong belief. She's a very successful journalist and author. And she had a lifelong belief that she was bad at maths. And that transferred to her being absolutely crap with money. I think she's late 30s, early 40s. And long held belief Mm. and really very positive. You know, no, this is the way it is. Anyway, she was helping her mother move house to an apartment And you know, as when you move house, I've done it recently, you come across all this ancient stuff. So she found a box with all her school stuff. And there was her school report. She was top of the class in maths. She has no idea where she got the idea that she was bad at maths. Mm. But she's apparently not bad at maths. But she has lived her entire life in a way that reflects a person being bad at maths. So there's so many things that we pick up along the way. That sense of self-compassion, which is why I write... And, and, and talk about self-compassion is we, ha- we have to learn it because we've unlearned it. We've, we've learned that loving yourself is somehow a bad thing or it's a selfish thing to do. Mm. But unless you can be compassionate with yourself, you're not going to be able to get into flow because when you're in flow, it actually doesn't matter if you make mistakes because you see that as part of the learning process, the feedback, the self-correcting, the Mm. part of the journey. And there is research that shows that, you know, the people are more compassionate about themselves. They're less hard on themselves for their failure, but they also make more progress, you know, whereas others of us are at certain times, we're just, we just get caught up on beating ourselves up. Yeah, but beating yourself up is exhausting. And of course, it'll slow you down. If if, it's a form of, instead of moving forward, you're, you're stopping to hit yourself over the head. It's you're you're not going to make progress. Yeah, no, it is absolutely a form of abuse. Mm. And we're the perpetrators. So, you know, any other kind of uh, abuse, we'd be standing up in arms and saying, no, hold on, this has to stop. But it really does have to stop. And I think there's so much linked with meditation and, and present mindedness that, that can center you and allow you then examine yourself in a non-judgmental way that mm. I think is hugely important for any of these steps. So, I mean, anyone listening, I'd say, you know, if you want to get into flow, you're probably already on, you know, in flow. And, you know, anytime you do anything where you don't notice the time passing, you're experiencing flow, really. You're getting Mm. satisfaction, enjoying. So I've always said to people as well that being in the moment, mindfulness doesn't have to be about sitting and breathing and being calm. You can gain incredible benefits by being in the moment of an activity, that can be a form of meditation in itself if you're totally focused. Yeah. Would, would you agree with that? Absolutely, I would. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of people would say to me, look, I, I just can't sit still. I just find it too hard. Yeah. And I get agitated and I'm actually more anxious by the time I finish it. Yeah, yeah. And I would always say, OK, well, is there anything that you used to do where you lost track of time yeah. that you don't do anymore? You know, and 
Maybe it was playing the guitar. Maybe it was just going out with a hurley and a schlitter or whatever it happened to be. Maybe it was pruning the hedges. Yeah. You know, who knows? But I think most people know themselves what's good for them and what helps their brain and their nervous systems. But a lot of the time, they're the first things that we put a line through when we get busy. Exactly. So even if you can't sit still or focusing on your breath seems to make you even more anxious, then go for a mindful walk. I call it finding your joy which is the exact same as flow because that's supposed to be about enjoy, you know. And some people will say to me, I have no idea what that is. I'm not passionate about anything. There isn't anything. And I said, well, you know, that's not the human condition. There is something. It's just you haven't done it for a very long time. And I've said, you know, even if you have to go back to your childhood, what was the thing that when your mother called you for dinner and she'd turn around and say to you, I've just called you three times. You never heard it. Whatever that activity was start with that. It could Mm. be something as simple as reading. Reading a book is a very classic example of flow. Sabina, I could talk to you all day. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I think people have a better understanding of flow state and and actually it's its role in our general feeling of how we're flowing through our own lives, which I think is lovely. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Oh, that's just fascinating. And I love the fact that flow state is actually a much wider state that we can access where our whole lives can go in and out of flow and not just an intense moment of work or sport or gardening. If you have any moments where you felt you've dropped into that zone, I'd love to hear from you. Or maybe you have some tips or techniques to offer me and the rest of our listeners. Just drop me a mail at podcast at dermotwhelan.com. So, time now to speak to Oppenheimer star, Oscar nominee and Golden Globe winning actor Killian Murphy. Killian has lit up the screen in incredible films like 28 Days Later, Breakfast on Pluto, which saw him nominated for another Golden Globe, Inception, Dunkirk and the Batman Dark Knight trilogy, of course. In recent years, he's known globally for his outstanding performance as the complicated and unforgiving character of Tommy Shelby in the hit series Peaky Blinders, soon to be a motion picture, as they say in Tinseltown. Now, this interview is actually an interview within an interview. Um, we've gone full inception, <laughs> which is fitting considering Killian was also in that, as I mentioned. The main part was actually recorded before this podcast or the Oppenheimer film were even a thing. We just decided to sit down and talk about being in the zone and thought it would be good for something maybe at a later date because it was a subject that actually fascinated us both. And recently we sat down again to chat about how much had changed for both of us and to reflect on just how much the flow state was at work in our lives today. This second part was recorded just days before Killian's Oscar nomination, which was announced. So it is very exciting. Killian and I absolutely loved this conversation and we hope you do too. So Killian, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm great. A bit of time has passed since we had our last conversation. Yes. Which would be uh, five years. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I take procrastination to a whole new level. But it's fair to say that a lot has changed in that time uh, for both of us. Yeah, it was very interesting listening back to it because I hate listening to myself or looking at myself. I think you're the same. But it was very interesting because it was like a snapshot, wasn't it, of what Mm. was going on five years ago, which is quite a long time. 
Well, in the meantime, one of us has got nominated for a Golden Globe <laughs> at the time of this recording. Yeah. Uh, obviously, Oppenheimer has happened you know, yeah. since we, we spoke last. And that's been huge for you. Yes. It's been huge for, for everybody because everybody loved it. It's, it's such an important film. Yeah, it, was, uh, it surprised us all, really. It seemed to connect in a way we could never have expected, you know, a three hour R-rated movie about a physicist just really, really felt like the time for the film. So it's been it's been mad just witnessing it all from a distance, mm. but really thrilled with it, with it all. Very it, flattered. It was hard work for you, yeah. wasn't it? Like I, I remember when you were in and around filming that, I obviously wouldn't see you while you were, while you were filming it, but yeah. it took a lot out of you. Yeah, I tend to work like that though. I tend to enjoy the really, really immersive characters and the stuff where you really kind of go at it at a very focused, concentrated, intense level. And that was definitely one. I suppose the difference was that I'd never mm. played a, a character, like a real life, iconic 20th century figure. And I'd never played such a big part for Chris. So th those were two things that I suppose changed for me in terms of the, the, the pressure of, of, the, of the performance. Mm. Do you think that Peaky Blinders was a good training ground for that? Do you, th do you think if you hadn't done all those years of Peaky Blinders that Oppenheimer would have been the same? Or is that one of those things where you just can't know? I don't think you can ever know. I think it probably came at the right time for me in my life and career. I've been working for a long time and you have a reasonable amount of confidence to know I'm ready to do this now. And I've said this many times, but the initial kind of euphoria and kind of joyous shock of being offered the part turned immediately for me into like, right now I need to start working home, I'm going to do it. You know? mm. And I love that. I, I really love it. And, and it was interesting. You said in this, in this conversation that we had five years ago, <laughs> we only have one deep and meaningful conversation every five years seems to be the pattern <laughs> but you said you know it, that you can't if you, if you feel totally relaxed going into a gig or, or a job then it's not going to be at the level you want it to be you know if you feel like I've got this or I'm going to cruise this I don't think you're going to do your best work for me it, the best work I've ever done is when I read a script and go, how the fuck am I going to do this? I, I really have no idea how I'm going to do this. Mm. The ones that I read, I think I know exactly how to do it. I'll generally not do. You know? Yeah. Well, let's let people have a listen to our conversation. Uh -huh. Because I am intrigued. I want people to hear it because I think it's a side of you that we are very rarely going to get to hear. Yeah. And, you know, an experience. I totally appreciate that it is not an area that you willingly want to jump into because I, I think it's, it's almost, you know, it's, it's peeking behind the curtain and maybe a lot of the time in, with your craft, you don't want to peek in there too much, you know? Yeah. And I know it's not a, you know, that kind of, that inward look at your craft is not something that, that you would be jumping out of bed to, to discuss. So I, I really do appreciate that. Yeah, no, of course. And, and when I listen back to it, I realised... I could only have had that conversation with you, I think, because we know each other so long. And because I don't generally uh, find it uh, easy to talk about process or yeah. how it happens. But people are obsessed about that, that stuff. But I think whatever point in our lives we were at and whatever stage 
we were at and whatever sort of energy there was during that day, it was just a really easy conversation. I, and I, I actually really enjoyed listening to it. Mm. I think it was a unique time, actually. Not in any way comparing my career to yours, but for me at that time when we recorded this conversation, I was just about to go and study to become a meditation teacher. That's right, yeah. It was literally two months before I went to, to California. And for you, you were on Peaky Blinders. I think you just finished season four. And I oh, guess okay. somewhere in your head, you were feeling like maybe that was coming to, close to coming to a conclusion, uh -huh. even though there was more to come. So it was an interesting point for the two of us in our own lives, just personally, in it, terms of there were crossroads approaching, you know. Yeah, and you never know. It's just a snapshot, isn't it? Yeah. But just when you, when you listen back, it kind of reveals things to you about yourself and about you know your friend and it's fascinating yeah we should we should do this again in five years time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay let's have a listen to it it's in the same room yeah we're here back in your house again in the yeah. same room and um, what i would love to do is after it just get you know a quick take to see if anything has changed for you you know having with the likes of oppenheimer and all the work you've done since has anything changed in terms of how you get yourself into that zone. So here it is, chatting to Killian Murphy. How would you define being in the zone? Some nights you can have a performance where it feels to you like you're totally gone, you know, totally immersed, lost in, the, in this performance, but in control. Mm. And the audience, you feel that the audience is there. And the next night, you can do everything step by step, you can mechanically do everything the same and it just won't be there. And nobody has ever figured out a formula as to why it changes. You know, I'm sure it's the same with stand-up. You can do the same gag. You know what I mean? You can hit the same rhythm of it and then it just doesn't pop. You know what I mean? And mm. that's what makes it so addictive, I think, is is you're trying to create that feeling that you have one night and, it, and then it won't happen for f five nights and and the, the difference hopefully if the show is good the difference is you know tiny but when it really connects between the audience and the performer it's undescribable really mm. is it possible to be aware of the mechanics of the situation when you're on stage as in the lines and where i'm meant to be standing and i'm meant to have this prop in my hand is it possible to be aware of all those things and be in the zone at the same time? Yeah, I think it is. I think there's um, there's that uh, sort of practical, mechanical side of you that know that that is a bit through rehearsals, through repetition. You know, I know I'm meant to be here at this point, and I know I'm meant to mm. pick that up at this point and interact with this thing at that point. And <clears throat> so that's sort of programmed into you, but at the same time something is happening emotionally in you that is free of that and that isn't isn't connected to that in a sort of a, an intellectual way so there's a kind of a dual carriageway of yeah things going on so on one side you have the practicalities of i should mm. be here saying this line oh look there's a woman in the audience that i know mm. whereas the other part of you is in that space where it's it's disconnected from those things but yeah, it's like it's like it's like autopilot. That stuff is on autopilot. That yeah. stuff is just flying itself. Do you know what I mean? And the other, you're concentrating on the other stuff, or not? It, it, the other stuff is 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 sort of taking over. Yeah, it's weird. Like that's why I, 
um, normally sort of reluctant to try and articulate because a lot of the times there isn't words for it. Like Enda Walsh, who I work with a lot, describes it as creating weather on stage, you know, weather patterns, which I think is a great description mm. of it. You know, sort of there'll be this kind of cloudburst of emotion will happen and it will affect the audience and affect you in such a way unexpectedly and and all of this you know and it's this kind of strange alchemy but there's no real we don't have a vocabulary for it because if we did people would just go right just do that 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 and that and you have a magical show Mm. i love his weather analogy Mm. like a lot of the time certainly with stand-up you know and obviously with with acting it anything with an audience you talk about energy exchange yeah you know and, and weather is really just a manifestation of nature's energy isn't yeah. it and are you aware of that sort of out you know your outbox of energy going to the audience and then getting stuff back from them and how important is that because he sometimes you get you know stand-ups blaming the audience yeah <laughs> you know you go they were terrible tonight you know, I couldn't get in my zone yeah. because they were just giving me nothing back. Yeah. Like, how important is that? Yeah, I think I, I think every every live performer f- feels that, you know, and I, I, I'm very interested in also that sort of the collective behaviors of, group, you know, a group of people, you know, you can have sometimes a really loud vociferous crowd that react. And I think, you know. There's studies that have sh- that have shown that you know if if there's one really loud laugher that sort of gives permission to everybody else to kind of laugh loudly and then it grows and they all get confidence in the fact. But mm. if if an audience comes in and they all for whatever reason seem to be quite a quiet audience, no one gives not one person is giving the whole collective permission to to respond and to laugh and that you know mm. and it's just the the makeup of that that audience and I think yeah performers will be like you know they were they were so quiet tonight or they. But you, again, you have to kind of overcome that and go, no, look, that's that's just, as you say, that's that's the, the exchange of energy that happened this evening. Yeah. And that was just a different exchange of energy, you know. Are you ever tempted to get someone just to sit in the audience and go? <laughs> yeah, but again, people will people innately know if that's a, a manufactured laugh. Yeah. Do you know yeah. What I mean? Or, or they, they just innately know if somebody's laughing honestly or mm. or or if there's somebody's doing that sort of a laugh <laughs> you should just do it anyway for the crack <laughs> yeah you can you're welcome to start do that. a really serious play <laughs> um are there any moments that stick out in your mind let's stay with theater for now you know moments that you go that was definitely i was in the zone there and if i you know, one of those shadows that you're chasing constantly as a as a performer. Are there any nights or plays or performances that stand out? Well, I remember very vividly the very first performance we did of Mr. Man. So the first performance being a preview, you know, it's it's still a work in progress. It's not actually, you know, we're still rehearsing during the day and mm. Enda had written and directed it. So he's still giving notes on the performance. But anyway, the, we did the first performance and it was just me on stage. And um, it's quite an intense, dark, physical show. Classic Ender Walsh <laughs> uh, <Really>? combination. <laughs> anyway, at the end, it, 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 like it finished quite abruptly and quite, quite a sucker punch of an ending. But it finished and I remember 
the set was vast like it was like something off of like a I don't know, like a Peter Gabriel <laughs> touring set. It was like vast. And I was standing on top of this two-story set on top of a chair with these massive angel wings on. And there was a blackout. And there was total and utter silence. And I remember th- being up there going, well, that was a fucking waste of six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, just silence. And gone, right now they're going to start coughing and then they're going to leave and I'm going to have to stand here. And then I think, and then I, I, and this sort of ended, says that it wasn't him that started clapping, but somebody initially, initially started clapping and then, you know, it was, it was really, really well received. But the, we didn't realize that we'd created such a sort of kind of distressing ending, you know, or like mm. it, it kind of winded people a bit. And as a result, they didn't feel ready to applaud. So you're 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 left going. The energy in the room had just stopped, and it was just suspended. You know. Yeah. And so the traditional response of applauding didn't seem appropriate to to anybody. So that was a fascinating kind of moment, and it happened quite a few times with that play. It didn't happen always, but it, again, when the way it hit the air, sometimes that just happened. And then. Conversely, is it disappointing then, say on the eleventh night, hmm. and you go boom blackout, yeah. and they go, yeah, it was great. Yeah. You're like, no, no, you're meant to be <laughs> soaking it in. Yeah, well, that's the thing about mm. inevitably, I suppose now about the world we live in is that you know there are no more real surprises because everyone's come out and gone, you know, said it to someone and someone's put it on some platform and then somebody you know what i mean mm. that or people read reviews and then they say oh i when well, i'm aware of this and then they want to show that they know that they get it and stuff happens but you know that you can never the purity i suppose of the first first ever performance of something the first ever time it, it is kind of let, let loose is is really special you know? mm. what's your earliest memory of feeling that time when you you're in the zone that thing that you spent your career chasing what's your earliest memory or do you have one performing either through music or theater or well i'd say it's similar enough probably to to you in that you know doing little sketches with my friends and making stuff up and then playing in bands and realizing that you know creating this kind of music or energy or making silly characters or whatever affected people and that they would be affected by it. Mm. And it would, it would, it would kind of elicit a reaction from them, you know, whether they, you get them to laugh or whether with music, you get them dancing or whatever. And you go, Oh fuck, you can actually do that. Like that's, and then, you know, when, when you get a group of lads playing in a band as I did for many years and, and the sort of music that we played was probably really interesting to us, which is, you know, 12 minute songs with like loads of, solos and like unnecessarily complicated chord progressions but you know i think cork was ready for prog jazz you know (laughs) there was a lot you'd be surprised there was a lot of prog jazz in 96 in cork so the band was the sons of mr green jeans yeah um and is there any difference do you think from the feeling of being in the zone as a music performer versus an actor or is, is it all kind of the same currency you're just getting in different ways i think it is the same 
currency and i think that um for me when i when the music kind of came to an end for me that that that's why i was i gravitated towards theater a lot because of the live element of it mm. you know so you get that immediate feedback yeah uh, yeah and and it's a uh, it's kind of electrifying you know um when it's good and i suppose the, that 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 happened like as a as a kid same as for yourself i'm sure like just playing in the back garden for the neighbors you know i mean you you kind of you just begin to kind of um get a little more sophisticated at that mm. moving on to telly and films and that kind of thing mm-hmm. because there's more going on it's obviously not live mm. you're now like a lot of the stuff you would tend to do on stage is it with very little cast or, or none other than yourself mm. so in film it's a it's a different environment so how does that affect you finding that place again that zone to get into yes yeah, it's, it's very 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 different because film and television acting is really just acting in moments capturing tiny tiny moments and then handing them over to to the director and the editor and 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 they then build the house out of it you know what i mean yeah Uh, i think there's probably someone at the door do you need to go maybe not yeah so obviously you know in TV and film, you don't have that immediate feedback. You've got mm-hmm. way more people involved in yeah. the process from going from you to the person who's got to enjoy your performance. Mm. So how do you find those moments, you know, of of connection, of being in the zone when you're in that different environment? Yeah, I think I really struggled at the beginning. I remember like being on, or very early on as a young actor, being on film sets and the scale of it, you know, you arrive in and there's massive trucks and there's all these strangers doing jobs that you've never heard of and you know it, it it's all these people building things and plugging stuff in and bringing smoke around and giving you things and telling you what to do and and then all of a sudden it it all come it all stops when the director says action and all of this massive uh, machine stops in order for you to say your line and I found that really <laughs> terrifying at the beginning, the yeah. pressure. And I used to get way more nervous doing films than I did doing theater because I found it like you have to be strong enough or focused enough or concentrated enough to block out the, the you know, the electrician standing next to you with a flag just next <laughs> to your face and the camera just above your face and, you know, like some other like somebody else standing over there trying not to make eye contact with you and all of these things and so it requires a huge amount more focus Mm. to get in the zone and to stay in it and then you know between takes of the same thing being disciplined enough not to drop out of it you know and without seeming seeming like like a really rude person and all of those things so i think that took me a long time to really really figure out Mm. i'm still figuring it out is it very frustrating when you feel like you've really you're in the zone and then for whatever reason the director shouts cut let's go again on that and you're like crap that was it man that was my that was Um, that's the best one of the day well no i mean i think you it may be, and that 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 may have been the one, but you know, you you that's the director's job to to go again, and and you have to give that to him or her and say, yeah, I, 
all right i'll do it again i don't know if you're what you're going to get but i'll do it again and like it's easier on on things like um like peaky blinders which is a very kind of wordy show so you'll get long takes of like 20 minutes sometimes because there's so much text and there's big long there's a lot of a lot of that show is actually just talking in rooms so you do get it's almost sometimes it feels like you're doing a a performance because it's just two actors and a, and a 20 minute scene mm. which is fantastic a, a do of, you get to do, do do you get to act out scenes that would be that long in full yeah i remember like for example some of the big confrontations between myself and alfie tom hardy's character we we were like it's not going to be fair if someone has to go first or if i have to go first you have to go. so we cross shot it we sh- shot them at the same time okay so it felt like uh, like it was just happening for real in the room at the time because if it's a 20 minute take some actors don't like to go first some actors prefer to go second some prefer to so it always you always get this sort of like um it's inevitably can be perceived as unfair so we just shot it cross shot it which means you have a camera going on both actors at the same simultaneous two cameras you know did you think that worked better? Yeah, well, that's certainly in terms of staying in the zone. That certainly yeah. helped because you knew that you know you had to. You always have to keep keep the performance as strong as you can for the other actor. But you know, it's normally it's your you know your coverage, my coverage, mm. and inevitably you know you're not on camera, so that does something to you. Whereas this, you knew you're on camera all the time, and it was really useful for those for the intensity of those scenes. I think. Your dogs are in the zone. He's focused on nothing except my biscuits. Can he, can he eat them? No, don't, no, you can't. Okay. Dog chocolate. It's not chocolate. It's uh, grains. There's chocolate in it, particularly dark chocolate. No, there's no chocolate in there. Is there? Chocolate chip cookie. Cinnamon, cranberry, pecan and oat. You never give a dog pecan. <laughs> <laughs> He'll wreck the place. Okay, we'll leave it there. Sorry. When you're... In when you arrive on set in the morning, yeah, like, and you're doing a scene as Thomas Shelby, mm-hmm. I'm trying to work out what what's happening in your head. <laughs> Say you're in this long scene with Tom Hardy. Are you read every bit of you believing you're t- you're Thomas Shelby? I just I, I'd love to get a sense of what's mm, what yeah. it feels like for you when you're full on Thomas uh, Shelby. Uh, I don't really know. That's a different character because I've been playing it now since. I walked out the other day, I've been playing him since I was 35 and I'm 42 now. So that's like on and off for seven years. So yeah. you, I, I have a good understanding of what makes him tick. Not, not that it's an easy, you can't just like rock up and get the haircut and then you're in. It takes a few, few, few months of like trying to figure out how to think like him again. But I, I, I think I've, for playing him for so long... And because the writing is so good, and because the writer, Steve, sort of writes for the actor, I suppose it's hard. I don't really know how you do it. Every job requires concentration. If you want to do something well, you really have to concentrate and focus on it. And so what I tend to do with him is I do an awful lot of preparation every year. And then I kind of just abandon the preparation and kind of just let it go. And the, and the choices that happen as the character, I don't question them. Unless the director questions them and then we talk about it. But his reaction and his the way he reacts to information or the way emotionally he responds to things. I don't question it. I just, I just let it happen at this stage. 
but is that like that you haven't actually planned when he says this i will react this way no or, never no no so yeah you, you haven't worked out i'm gonna no no and i never and, and and i don't know how like other actors feel about but i i adore rehearsal in theater like i it's my favorite part of making a piece of theater is mm. the four weeks in the rehearsal room whereas in film and television i hate it i t- try and avoid it if possible because because like i said earlier film and television is about capturing moments and that moment when you are in the zone or whatever you want to call it so to sort of mark up the set in a, in a rehearsal room and to walk around with your costume jacket on you know really going for it feels futile to me because you're you should be capturing that stuff mm. so we can talk around the scenes or talk about how they may turn out or how whatever but i want to don't ever want to be prescriptive or sort of uh, you know I, I just want to let it happen yeah and that and then, then it'll feel real so it has to have that rawness it has to have that yeah. unpredictability uh, yeah and sometimes you do things that you're not aware of and sometimes they're they're mistakes but they're mm. but they're but they're correct Sorry, Killian. I don't think uh, Thomas would do the dab there. <laughs> Can we go again? <laughs> it's funny. There's so many dabs on the cutting room floor. <laughs> um, obviously, you know, when you hear from sports people, and uh, usually it's sport because their prep is so orchestrated and organized. Yeah. What are the things... Like, how would you prepare for your day on set, say, and how do those things help you get into the zone? Well, as I get older, um, sleep, like I love sleeping and I and I and I find that it's um, like, yeah, because you have to get up early. I'm not moaning about it like it's a brilliant job. But you have to get up early and in order to be ready, you need to have slept <laughs> it mm. sounds so on rock and roll you just need to be rested and you need to be kind of focused and um like I, it- I do find it hard working with actors because there's a kind of an actor's image or stereotype of you know you roll out of the pub at all hours and then get hauled out of bed and mm. into the set and you just sort of turn it on mm-hmm. the minute someone shouts action is it possible to function doing it that way I and how how do so many actors get by doing it that way uh, you know, or is that a stereotype that's not actually true no i think that you know when you're young and kind of just in love with life and wanting to experience everything and you know you do foolish things and you do stay out late and you do i suppose need to experience things and do all of that stuff and you get away with it because you're young and and generally at that age, you know, you're playing smaller parts. So, you, you know, you can, you know, the, 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 the story isn't going to, you know, hinge on you delivering the sort of performance of your career, you know. But I've always been fairly disciplined in that I kind of take quite serious and uh, quite seriously. And, and um, I'd be too, I would have too much anxiety. <laughs> I'd have too much anxiety to really, you know roll out of bed and turn up unprepared i couldn't mm. i never really had that freedom you know i had a lot of fun in my 20s and in my youth but i, I was too i felt too much of a 
I felt like I'm a total interloper here. I just managed to blag my way into this thing. And if I don't, you know, do it right and, you know, focus on this, I'm going to be found out and that'll be it. The adventure will be over. Mm. So I was very kind of quite conservatively focused on it, I suppose. You mentioned anxiety there and certainly any times when I had a sense a show wasn't going to go well Mm. was when I wasn't nervous. When you're just about yeah. to st- stand and go out on a stage doing comedy and you think, oh, no, I'm really relaxed. <laughs> this is a disaster. Yeah. Like you'd need that little fizz in your belly mm. to kind of push you into those places where you need to be mm-hmm. to really connect with an audience. Do you need that little bit of little fizz in your belly if you're on set or is it just pure focus? <sighs> yeah, I think. In, yeah, you do get that. And the great thing about. The great thing, even though we've been doing this for a long time, this show, every year there's a different director. Every year there's different group, there's new actors coming in. And then you get these incredible actors coming in, doing parts in it. And they and you go, oh my goodness, these actors are so amazing. I'm really going to have to step up here. I just can't just cruise in and take my hat off and put my hat back on and smoke a fag. You know, I've got to like really step up to it. So it really keeps you on your toes. And, you know... I like making mistakes. Um, like, you know, you come in and you do a big, big entrance and it's really over the top and <laughs> melodramatic. But someone said, like, mistakes are the portals to discovery. So if you realize that that you realize that was a silly thing to do, mm. then it, it fires something else. And you're like, oh, and then that gets you going, gets you invigorated. Whereas if you did the same thing all the time, if you gave the same performance all the time, then I think you'd probably all of that sort of excitement and buzz or uh, low level anxiety would probably disappear. Mm. How important is clean living, you know, to getting into that zone and the stuff that potentially can. Some people see alcohol or drugs or stuff like that as as something that that can get them into the zone. Mm. And for others, it's the very thing that keeps them out of it. Yeah. How, How is that for you? You know, I think I've probably like over the years had sort of a different relationship with it. But like I said, I, I, I'd have two, I'd feel the burden of responsibility too heavy on my shoulders to ever just throw complete caution to the wind, you know? Mm. And I much prefer to kind of enjoy relaxing with pals or having drinks or going out however, when I have no responsibilities, I, I can't ever, I could never really sort of reconcile having the crack or living the party lifestyle with working, they still seem sort of irreconcilable. Mm. And I said, and I, as I said earlier, again, like I'm 42, I need to sleep now. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of stuff that you want to do, mm. you know, because I presume like anything, the more you do it or the more you play a character or, you know, the more you're in one particular environment, be it theater or film, with the best will in the world, it becomes normal. Mm. And so you need to, you want to step outside that. Where do you want to go? And where do you think is the next place where you're going to find those shadows that a performer and creative person keeps chasing? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I never expected, for example, to, you know, to be working with Enda Walsh 22 years later and still to be making theatre with him. And I think that, the theater that we do that we make together for me anyway i find it like 
every time we start a show, I go, I don't know if I can possibly do this. This is so outrageously challenging. I don't know if I can do it or he should just hire somebody else because I'm too old. Um, <laughs> and, and then with Peaky Blinders, like I never expected the thing to run and run and run. And, you know, but also the thing about that is that it is, in my opinion, the writing has, if anything, improved and gotten stronger and got more confident. The character goes to places that I would never have expected and and really, like, goes deep, you know? Mm. And so that's a, that's a real challenge to play. And also, it's I'm aging with the character, which is really interesting, you know? So you're you're sort of... You can reflect that in the performance, you know? Yeah. And that, that, I've never had an opportunity to do that before. You know, you always do a, a part and you're that age for that part. And it's sort of frozen in time forever. Whereas at this, you the whole thing of existing for longer on the planet you can put into the character. You know? mm. Like Obviously, with a character that you play, well, any character that you're really involved with, I suppose, especially a character that you're involved with over a long period of time, mm-hmm. the... On a day-to-day level, the, your own personality and their personality, there must be a blurring of lines. What's it like when you step off a project and you come home to your own your home life where we are now? Like, what's that transition for you like? It. I mean, it, it yeah, it, it depends. Some characters, it's easy. You just like mm. take off the costume and it's grand. And the, the characters where you do go a little deep, like I was mentioning, then it does take a period of transition. It takes a period of decompression, I think. And I think all performers have that. You can't really just step back into family life, civilian life, domestic life immediately. If it's been a big part, if it's taken a big part of you emotionally and a big part of you physically and you've been away from the house for mm. you know five months and you come back and you, you've you've moved the sofa it's, a, it's like a massive... it's like i don't live here anymore <laughs> but the worst is when actually you realize things have been going perfectly well without you you know what i mean <laughs> yeah um but i think that's every, every everyone who who's whose lifestyle is a little itinerant whose lifestyle is a little sort of you're living out of a suitcase you're moving around you know that yeah that happens mm. i mean it's not it's not difficult it, it's not um, it, it just takes a while you know that's all do elements of the character ever stay with you in terms uh, of how your behavior and all that or is it is it too do you just have you, do you just leave that behind i don't know i think i think actors like saying that but i i don't know i think yeah um, I, I don't know i maybe other people see it i think i th- I, I, I don't know it is it's like anything. If you go through something or you give something in any job, inevitably it'll take a while for that to sort of fill up again, mm. you know, and that's just kind of normal. It's not like some crazy artistic, you know, like um, state of mind. It's just a reality. It's just a kind of an exchange. You know? Yeah. Maybe, can I ask you a couple of questions? Yeah. Yeah, that'd be cool. I just wanted to ask you, Dermot, because like what, because I know you do a lot of stand up, but what you've talked to me about in the past is that the, the stuff that you really enjoy most is the improvisational comedy, comedy where you're just a light comes on, you're in front of an audience, someone throws a subject or a character or, or a word or whatever it is, and you go mm. and that that you actually find that more satisfying and more fulfilling than 
sitting at home and writing a comedy show. Yeah. But for, for some performers, that would be the... I mean, I have dreams about walking on stage and not knowing what to say. And it's an anxiety dream. Like, a, it's, it's, it's like... Yeah. Oh, my fucking God. This is the worst thing. There's thousands of people there and you, you've gone on. You... <laughs> but you enjoy that. Somebody shouts up, on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> but you enjoy that. Yeah, I do. And I, I, that is actually one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast, because I would find that more than stand up. It was the improv stuff. It was the stuff where there was no plan. It, that was where I would find myself in that zone where you become somewhere else. You you are someone else and you have no concept even that there are people watching you sometimes. You're just in it and you've no con. You could sometimes, one of the senses I get is you could keep that scene going forever. Even though it's just been made up it didn't exist, you know, until an audience member shouted it up 30 seconds before. But you could I could literally play that character for the rest of the day. <laughs> and and, and you're kind of sad when there's a big punchline and the scene ends. You think, God, but the beauty of it is that it this character develops. It's got loads of depth and then it just disappears and it'll never return again. So that that feels to me like that is this sort of like in the zone extreme because there is no like safety net there. There is no, you know, we like actors have a text, a script and you can, you know, extemporize and improvise off of that script. But you always have that sort of safety net with mm. which to, to kind of hold on to. But the way you, you, you like to work is in terms of creating stuff in the moment live where you've only yourself to rely on there's nobody else there to kind of catch it well i suppose if you've other comedians there is but so that's like you're kind of like opening a, a valve and just letting the creativity come out right yeah and that's you know when you mentioned it earlier that safety net and when you do theater mm. that it's it's that live feeling and i i wanted to come back to it because i think you absolutely need no safety net to create those circumstances where that where the zone or the flow state will really happen mm. where you get that raw connection to creativity yeah you know our excellence whatever field you're in if you're you know if you're a sports person if you're kicking a, a grand yeah. slam winning penalty like you know if ronan o'gara had taken that kick knowing that well if i hit go left or right we're going to win anyway it's it's not this yeah. it's not the same you know yeah. And so I think for me anyway, absolutely, it, it's the lack of a safety net that that's essential to get into that space because there has to be a cost there. You know, there has to be a cost if you if you, if fail. you fail. Yeah. And how long did it take you to come to that realization after doing, say, scripted stand up shows and then realizing that actually, no, I think that where I need to be is in this improvisational world. It was actually about six years. It was actually at the point of where my stand-up career, when I was starting to sell out big venues, and I thought, okay, this is I'm at a crossroads now. I can, I can really pursue this and 
go to the UK and make that make this my life for the next 10 years. Yeah. But I've actually found myself almost subconsciously sabotaging gigs. Interesting. Because I I I couldn't because I kept trying to create that feeling, you know, that flow state. Yeah. But uh, what I would end up doing is is leaving my material that I knew worked that was rock solid you know, at big gigs and festivals and things and start to just riff and improvise stuff and go off on doing things that I wrote in the taxi on the way in just to create that feeling of there being more risk. Yeah, danger. And, and sometimes it might work, rarely, but most <laughs> of the time because you hadn't worked out the material yeah. properly, it would, it would, it would bomb. And I, I have other comedians, you know, standing off stage when I come off and I'd be like sweat pouring <laughs> off me. And they're like, dude, what are you doing? Just do the greatest hits, man. Yeah. It's a festival. Just yeah. enjoy it. But I couldn't because I, 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 I couldn't enjoy it unless I was creating some risk, you mm-hmm. know. So that's why I do more improv now. That's why I wanted to do this podcast and, ha- and chat to you is because I, I needed to see if people in other fields, you know, and people like you at the top of their game, actually you know what you use to to get into that space and were you willing you know did you find yourself almost you know sacrificing other things just to get there you know it's interesting because you know people ask me you know why why do you do theater and like live theater live theater is so absurd really in many ways you know and it can fail at any moment you know mm. what I mean? And and for that sort of, you know, for that state of that suspension of disbelief or whatever, for that to come crashing down is so easy. You know, lights can fail. Somebody can in the audience can fall ill or people forget their lines. So that state of tension that exists all of the time for the audience and for the performer mm. is massive. And I guess it's a similar thing to to what you're talking about in that, like doing improv you're just sort of you're not cruising you're actually scrambling to stay afloat all of the time and that's therefore you're completely you know relying on your creativity to, to see it through and i suppose in in a far less kind of vulnerable way doing live theater is like that you know mm. but i suppose isn't isn't you know acting for tv and film as well the way you approach it because you're not rehearsing things in advance to the nth degree that mm. your reactions are as real as as your character as you can make them yeah well like it, the, there is a sense i mean there's huge improvisation going on there while you're on a set yeah there? well it's it i think that 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 people again subconsciously react to what they feel is something truthful or in a performance mm. you know and, and people just if they know nothing about storytelling or nothing about I don't know, theater or whatever, will immediately smell if something is fake or if someone is pushing something. They just know. Mm. They just they absolutely know. And that thing about mistakes leading to truth or whatever, I think is really interesting, you know, or mm. discovery. One thing I would like to ask you to do for your next projects, be it Peaky Blinders or, or whatever else, more dabs. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I think we might release just a DVD of Tommy Shelby dabbing. 
<laughs> you know that would sell better than the actual <laughs> yeah, show. That's the sad thing. Yeah. <laughs> Killian, thanks so much for chatting it to me. It was a pleasure. And I better thank the dogs as well because uh, they played a major role today. <laughs> they did. They did. Okay, so there was our conversation. So mm. maybe nothing changes over time in terms of how you get yourself into that raw creative space. Mm. Do you think now with your five years on worth of experience, has anything changed? Just on cue, the dog seems to be back here when you at the door. <laughs> <laughs> Genuine. Yay. Yay. Hello, Scout. I have no biscuits this time. As regards, like in terms of the way I approach work since then, it's been, it's the same. Mm. Honestly, it's, it's... So no difference, say, on the set of Oppenheimer, you know, you've obviously done huge features before, but, you know, Peaky Blinders versus Oppenheimer, there was no difference for you in terms of finding that creative space, that zone, for you to do your best work. It, it's... All the, all the, all the, the techniques, or they're not really techniques, it's just a thing that you go through, were the same. I mean, I did a huge amount of prep, as much prep as I could in the time that I had. And then again, you just kind of rely on your instinct. You know, the mm. instinct is the most important thing you possibly have, I think, as an, as an actor. It's the most powerful, it's the most powerful tool you, you have. Perhaps I have a little more confidence. You, you hope that as you, get, as you get older and you do more work, you have a little more confidence, you become a better actor. Hopefully those things are true. But you never know. Mm. You just never know. You know just, I always think instinct is, is key. They say it's one of the toughest jobs in the world. And so much of that is uncertainty. You know, if you're going to be an actor, there's so much uncertainty. Does it feel like your job is any easier now? Or do you still think it's a difficult career? Even now? I mean, I don't know if it's one of the toughest jobs in the world. I mean, it's really just putting on voices and dressing up, you know. <laughs> I, I, I suppose there's... I take it very, very seriously, having said that. I take, it's the, it's, it, when I do it, it's, I, I, I give it everything I possibly can. Mm. I, don't, I, don't really, I don't really know. There's an uncertainty to it in terms of a career. There's uncertainty to it in terms of... Uh, the commercial aspect to things succeeding and not succeeding that you have zero control over. There's the thing of, you know, feeling like, you know, you're, you know, I mentioned in, the, in our, our chat five years ago that, you know, this thing about being an interloper and being found out, like that never goes away. That mm. never, ever goes away. And the people that I've spoken to who are, you know, legends would still say that that exists. It's mad, isn't it? Uh, yeah. It's but it's if, also reassuring. Yeah. Why? Well, it does. That everyone feels it. Oh, yeah. Do you know, it's not something that you should be ashamed of, you know? And I think it means that you're, you know, more being truthful to yourself, that you want to do the best work possible. Mm. Um, One of the nice points that Sabina, um, my neuroscientist friend... Right. One of the nice points that Sabina made was that, or certainly was suggesting through her work, is that the zone is more than just this place we temporarily fall in and out of. That actually it's the overarching. There's a zone to our life. And that it's as much about creating and finding ways of getting ourselves into that overarching zone. 
not just those moments of intense work or, or mm-hmm. experience that actually the, the zone is a bigger space. And yeah. I really like that, you yeah. know, that even if we're not involved in a, in a really challenging project that's getting our juices flowing, that the, the wider lens of our lives is a zone that we can work at, yeah. getting into and, and enjoying more. Yeah, I can recognize some of that because, as you know, I enjoy not working an awful lot. I enjoy mm. having long gaps between projects because I think that's research. That's all part of the work. You, you know what I mean? Like being a human being, interacting with people, uh, observing people, mm. having human experiences, just being a, a civilian and, you know, being with your kids, being with your friends, being with humanity. Like that's, that's if you don't do that, then how are you supposed to portray uh, human mm. beings on, on, on screen. So I spend an awful lot of time just just living a very ordinary life. But I do feel that subconsciously it, it is just, that's where the richness is. That's where the real stories are. That's where the real drama is, is in just living your life. And then when you go back to, do, you know, perform in these made up fictional stories, I think you're, 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 you're better armed to do it as opposed to constantly living in a bubble of just work and, you know, in a car to work on a set, in a hotel, in a, in a film festival. I, can't, I, can't, I couldn't exist like that. Mm. Because I, and I think I said this in the first time we spoke, that, that you know, if you give a lot in your work, and, and, and it's not in a, a woe is me sort of a way, but if you, if you, if you, um, if you put everything you can into the work that you do, then there needs to be a time where that refills. It's just a simple equation, really. Mm. It's a simple creative equation. It's not easy, though. I mean, the nature of your business, uh, now my business, um, is that, you know, there, there is more room for that downtime, mm. in theory. Yeah. But for people who are, you know, up against it, five or six days a week doing the job it's very hard to you can't go kind of yeah well we got that project over the line jimmy I know. okay let's all take three months off I, I <laughs> you're know, like, no uh, you're back in tomorrow and there's a new project and another deadline i know i recognize that that's a very rarefied world that you know mm. that, that, that that we exist in and that and it's you feel so privileged to be able to do that but that that's i suppose the the only thing that I can do at this point. That's the only contribution I can make to society at this point. And so you try to do that to the best way that you can. And then you figure out a system for yourself mm. that works. But you know, you're right. And that's why, you know, I would object to saying it's the hardest job in the world. There's so many jobs that are so much harder in so many ways. I think one yeah. of the worst is the stop, go sign guy. <laughs> I've just, I always make a point of waving and saying thank you, rolling down the window. Thank you. Because I, I spent a long time standing around on film sets yeah. doing the equivalent of stop, go. Yep. And I know what it's like. I know how cold your feet get. I know how long the day seems, yeah. you know, so, um, and I'm sure the stop go guys probably going, there's a guy down there lifting blocks uh, you know, <laughs> or digging a hole for pipes. I don't want to be that guy. So, but yeah, yeah. 
Uh, so be nice to the stop go guy Dude. on the road. Killian, thanks a million. It was a pleasure. It's been lovely. Uh, I wish we could have another really long conversation about stuff, but uh, this podcast can only be so long. But I uh, wish you the best of luck, my you, friend. You too, man. Great to uh, chat. Great can't to wait see you. to see what you do next. We have seen each other in, in the interim in yeah, between these have. five yeah. years, so just so everyone knows. <laughs> yeah. But um, Any ideas what's next? Oh, I don't know. Stuff is kind of percolating, mm. um, but I'm, I'm in one of those in-between periods now. And I'm quite happy to do Yeah. That. Will it be a movie, do you think, your next thing? Probably. I haven't done a play in a while. So, again, that particular well hasn't filled up yet again. So, mm. But, yeah, it'll probably be a film, I'm not sure. I'd like to remind you what you're like after one of those plays, <laughs> by the way. Yeah. Like, they're so intense, those one-man shows, that yeah. you're, you're, like, strung out after it. Like, it's, it takes so much out of you. Like, yeah. Not it, surprising. Anyone who's seen your shows will know that. Yeah, it does. But again, that's that's the only way I, I, I like to work in those shows. And it's the only way me and Enda seem to make work together. But mm-hmm. um, that does exact the cost as you get, as you get older. Because I was 42 on that last podcast and bloody 47 now. So, you know. Anyway, we'll figure it out. Something will turn up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you'll get a call. <laughs> Listen, I have a project which... Uh, Good. You'll be really interested in. Uh, Killian, thank you, my friend. Thanks, Germs. Ah, brilliant. Thanks so much to Killian, and I can't wait to see what he does next. I'll be sure and give him a shout in another five years. (laughs) On next week's episode, we'll be looking at the power of friendship and just what it's like to turn around to your best friend that you've worked with for 20 years and tell him that you're leaving. My amazing guests will be my long-term radio partner from Today FM, Dave Moore, you have to do this. Like I, I know in my soul, you have to push this out here and give it everything. And in order for him to do that, I have to sacrifice a bit of my happiness, which is us being together every day. So if you'd stayed put for the relationship... Or, oh, I would have murdered everybody. Yeah. But that's my point. You Maybe you would have resented me. And rock star psychologist Louise Carroll, who'll be exploring relationships in all forms, from family relationship challenges to romantic relationships, even our relationship with ourselves and the tricky world of friendship breakups. There's a very interesting shift happening where younger men are far more interested in intimacy than just pure physicality. And that would have been flipped on its head from what we would have, you know, what the popular assumption of man was. I'm seeing younger men way more interested in having meaningful connections with women. And I'm seeing women more interested in having freedom and adventure with men. And I'm also very excited to tell you that you can join me on next week's episode as well. We will be taking your calls from next week. And if you have any questions or comments about meditation or any of the topics we cover, just drop them to podcast at dermotwhelan.com and we can have the chats on the show. And finally, each week, we're going to round off the episode with a simple one-minute meditation that you can do anytime, anywhere. And this week, we talked about getting in the zone. And in my experience, the main things that stop me from getting into a flow state are overthinking and worry. This is the first meditation I ever learned, and it is brilliant for calming an anxious, frantic, our full mind. So sit back, relax, and here we go. So let's get nice and comfortable. If you're driving, keep your eyes open. And we're going to do something called 
box breathing, square breathing, or as I like to call it, 16 seconds. That's how I learned it. And I love the idea that we can find stillness, peace, calm, turn off our stress response in as little as 16 seconds. So we're going to direct our breathing into our bellies, okay? And when we breathe in, we want to feel that belly expand. So here we go. Breathing in for four, two, three, four. Now hold that breath in your belly. Three, four, letting that go. Two, three, four, and hold. Two, three, four. Really good. Let's do it one more time. So breathing in for four. Hold. Let that breath go. And hold. Four. And there you go. There's your 16 second technique. Take it with you today. And whenever your mind feels a little bit full, just give it 16 seconds. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. You have been listening to the Mindful Podcast with me, Dermot Whelan. Producer is Brian Connolly. Title music by next week's guest star, actually, Dave Moore. And the Mindful Podcast is recorded at NK Studios in Dublin. Have a wonderful week. And don't forget to unwreck your head and de-stress your life. I'll talk to you soon.